morning, church. Glad to have you guys with us this morning, and uh, hopefully your Bibles are already open to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, as we continue this series. That's where we'll be today. And uh, <clears throat> as I get started this morning, um, as Steve read that passage, and as you're looking at the sermon title on the screen behind me, uh, Obedience Isn't Optional, you're going to have one of two responses. Some of you are sitting up straight, you've got your notepad, you've got your pen, you're all excited because we're going to talk about rules and we're going to talk about obedience. And some of you are total rule keepers. You're probably a firstborn like myself and you get all jazzed and excited about rules. And so this is just for you today. Now, on the other side of the coin, there are those of you who just started to twitch when you saw obedience. The word obedience made you just start to twitch, didn't it? Now, I can see a few of you out there even twitching now. Because in life, there are those of us who tend toward being rule keepers and those of us who tend toward being rule breakers. Should we take a little survey this morning? Ooh, I got some. The rule, all the rule keepers are like, yeah, let's do that. How many of you like, would say, like, when it comes to, say, the speed limit, you're like, I'm a rule keeper. How many of you are rule keepers in the room? Just in general. We got some, okay. How many of you are rule breakers? And you're proud of it. Zhu has both hands up back there, right? Yeah, and what happens is, is that when we come to the Bible, the same thing happens. We come to our spiritual lives, you know, the same thing actually happens. What, what we call it isn't rule keeping or rule breaking. What we call it is legalism or license, right? And so the rule keepers are all the legalists, right? They're the ones who make the rules and make extra rules, make rules about the rules, expect themselves to keep the rules. They're really proud when they keep the rules. They expect everybody else to keep the rules, and they're really judgy when you don't keep their rules, right? I'm a rule keeper most of the time, right? I like to think of myself as a hybrid. I'm a rule keeper and a rule breaker. Some of you identify with that. Okay, when it works for me, I keep the rules. When I don't like the rules, I break them. That makes sense. But at the end of the day, what happens is we all gravitate in one of these two directions. We either gravitate toward and tend toward being rule keepers, or we tend toward being rule breakers, legalists or licensed. If you want a big word, uh, they call it antinomianism, right? Against law, people who aren't into rules or laws or anything like that. And what happens is that's like kind of pervaded the church throughout the course of, of time. And it's even come down to our lives today. And what happens is some of you, like me, grew up in a situation that was really legalistic. It was really about the rules, just for the sake of the rules. The do's and the don'ts. You, you can't do this and you can't do that. Don't go to movies and don't play cards and don't drink and don't smoke and don't have any fun of any kind whatsoever. And then you're a good Christian. You're like, sign me up for that, right? I don't know why teenagers fled the church when we were like, here are all the rules and there's no fun. But what happened is, is a lot of people my age, younger than me, came out of that tradition and the pendulum swung all the way over to here to the side of license. And we're like, I can drink, smoke, chew, go out with girls who do. It doesn't matter how I live or what. All that matters is the grace of God. I can live however, quote, the hell I want and God's going to send me to heaven because of the grace of God. And the problem is, is that both of those are misses when it comes to the Bible and God's word. Fourteen times in 1 John, he's going to use, in, in, uh, depending on your translation, 14 times he's going to use something related to commands or commandments or keep my commands or keep my words. I have important news for us today. God's word is full of rules and they still apply today, many of them. God's walking with God is a call to obedience. 
but we miss the obedience piece on one of two directions. And some of us, again, we miss it because of our heart, we're obeying the rules in our lives, but in our hearts we're not, and we're legalists. And on the other side of the spectrum, some of us are like, well, let's not fake it, let's just break all the rules anyway. So our perspective, as soon as we start talking about obedience, it's important to understand and acknowledge our perspective because I want you to see from 1 John 2, 1 through 6 today, the big idea of the sermon is really important, and that is that obedience isn't optional. When it comes to the Christian life, obedience isn't optional. How we obey is important. Why we obey is important. That we obey is not optional. And so we'll open God's Word together, and we'll walk through it a verse at a time as we do every week here, because I want you to see God's words and my word, not, not my words, God's ideas and not my ideas, what he has to say about commands and rules and, and, and obedience. If you're taking notes, all of you rule keepers who are taking notes and have your notebooks and you're ready to go, First John 2 verses 1 and 2, we're going to learn that obedience is the expectation. Obedience is the expectation and we'll just break it down. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And there are some words in there that we don't typically see and use in normal conversation. We'll get into those, and there's even a pretty significant theological controversy that's contained in those verses, and I'll talk briefly about that. But before I do any of those, I want you to look at those first three words, my little children. <clears throat> you see, we believe that all of the words that God inspired these men to write down are profitable and they're important. And I've said before that when John wrote this letter, he's an old man, 80, 85, 90 years old. He had walked with Jesus through his either his late 20s or his early 30s. He had become a leader in the church, and he had spent years and years and years leading the church. Church history tells us that up until about A.D. 70, John was there in Jerusalem leading the church, and then with the great persecution in A.D. 70, then, then people fled from Jerusalem, and John ended up in the great city in Asia Minor called Ephesus. And John was there in that great city, and he was directing and guiding churches throughout that whole region of Asia Minor. And that he was, as he was directing and guiding those churches and teaching them the words from God and teaching them the things that he had seen from Jesus, as an older man responsible for all these Christians, I want you to see the tone with which he talks to them. When he says, my little children, there are three different ways in the original language that, that you can call somebody a child. And you can call somebody a child and it's just like, hey kids, knock it off. What John does here is he pulls out the, the most relationally focused, the most intimate, the most important, the, the term of endearment, when you want to say, my dear little children, and he calls them that. And what we see and we understand is that when we're talking to people about God's expectations, tone matters. Relationship matters. That when we preach, when we teach, when we parent, when we provide advice, guidance, counsel, Tone matters. As a parent, I have to remind myself of that. I get very passionate about the things that I believe. And I have to remind myself that tone matters. That as we walk through this, you're going to see that relationship is all important. That as an older man, John had a relationship with these people. That John had a relationship with the people that he was ministering to. That he didn't just come in and pound them and hammer them with the truth and walk away. 
He didn't come in with a pitchfork or a bullhorn or a sign with a derogatory term on it. And that when we go to people, whether it's proclaiming from a stage, a pulpit, a classroom, or parenting our kids or talking about these things at work or other contexts, church, tone and relationship matters. It says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He says, I'm writing down what God has given me to write down, and there's a purpose. There's a purpose behind what I'm writing. There's a purpose behind the Word of God and the words of God. And what is that purpose? He says, so that you may not sin. In verses 5 through 10, as we looked at last week, it was all about people who lied and said that they didn't sin or they had no sin. Then they dismissed, excused, redefined sin. And he said, though, that the truth was that we're all sinners by nature and choice. And John says, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. I want you to see this, is that God gives us his word to guide us in living holy lives. You need the word of God more than you need a preacher. You need the word of God more than you need a blog or a podcast. You need the word of God to teach you how to live a holy life. The coming and listening to me talk about it once a week is not enough to guide us in our Christian life and Christian walk. You need to be involved in a Bible study. You need to be involved in a Bible reading, personal Bible reading plan. Why? Because he's writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And here are a couple ways that people miss on this one. Some of us miss by thinking, like, sin is inevitable. There's no way I can have victory over sin. There's no way that I can just not sin. Sin is completely inevitable. And so then that leads us to despair. It's like, well, if sin is inevitable, why try, right? Why fight it? Then on the other side, some miss because they say, well, sin is no big deal. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as what I saw on the Internet. So sin is no big deal. But John is setting the expectation for us here when he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And what he's talking about is living in victory in the Christian life. Living in victory over sin. He's saying that through God's word, and scripture tells us through the spirit of God, using the word of God, that you can live in victory over sin. Last week we established that, that sin is our thoughts, it's our motives, it's our words, and it's our deeds. It's omission and commission. That there are a lot of options on the smorgasbord of sin, right? But that you can have victory over sin. He's not teaching that you'll never commit another act of sin. He's not teaching that, as some people have said, like this idea of perfectionism, that you can attain this kind of perfectionism just on your own and on trying hard enough. That's not what this passage is teaching. What he's teaching is that you can have freedom and victory over sin in your life. Romans 6, 7, and 8 is a great, or three great chapters to go to to understand how does the Spirit of God help us to have victory over the sin in our lives. And the question, the challenge that I would leave with you this morning is this. Do you believe that you can have victory over sin? Do you really believe that that thing that has beset you, that has held you down, those thoughts, those words, those deeds, that you really believe that you can have victory over that? I'll tell you, as a person who who struggled with anger throughout the course of my life, that God can give you victory. At 44 years old, I am not the man that I was in my 20s and my early 30s. 
that God can give us victory over that, over the way that we use our words to manipulate people, all, all of those things, lust, sexual sin, all of it. We can live in victory over sin. And John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Rules and obedience are part of the process. And I need us to see that rules and obedience are part of the expectation for Christian living. Lest we think that like Christian living is just some ethereal idea where we walk with Jesus and have a great personal relationship with Jesus, but it doesn't actually affect the way that we live. Rules and obedience are part of the process. <clears throat> These next verses are really good news for all of us, especially if you, like, like me, have a propensity toward sin. But if anyone does sin, like, oh, thank you. I was hoping we would go there, right? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, there's one of those words we don't use a whole lot, the advocate. Parakletos is the Greek word that, that is translated here for advocate. John's the only person who uses this in the New Testament. And it's interesting because if you go to the Gospel of John, uh, chapters 14, 15, and 16, he uses it four or five times. And you know who he's talking about? He calls the Holy Spirit our paraclete, our helper. It's translated helper in all of those times. And he says, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to send you another one who's going to come after me, and it's going to be good for you because he's going to be your helper. An advocate is someone who acts on behalf of another as a helper. An advocate is a legal representative. You think of an attorney, you get into trouble, you need an attorney, he comes in, he pleads your case before the judge, right? That's the idea of an advocate here. An intermediary, somebody stand in the gap. And he says that when we sin, because it's going to happen, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This means that he's one who speaks in our defense. And I want you to see this picture, because here's the problem, that for many of us, especially if you grew up in a legalistic church background, that for many of us, the picture that we have of Jesus when we sin is not an advocate with the Father. It's not someone who's standing and pleading our case, standing in our defense, we would actually see Jesus more as the prosecuting attorney than the defense attorney. We would have this erroneous idea about Jesus that he's actually somehow the judge that's going to stand there and pound us. We have this idea of Jesus that rather than being the advocate, that he's the one that's just standing there disappointed. I can't believe you would do something like that. I'd look at all that I've done for you. And so often preaching and teaching has led us to think that. Church, that's an erroneous view of Jesus. Why? Because the text... The text actually says, this isn't my words, my ideas, because the text says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We're going to learn about the wrath of God. It's real and it's true. I'm going to take you to a text to see it, but I need you to see and understand that every time you sin, you can't see Jesus as just this like prosecuting attorney or somebody who's just upset and disappointed with you, and I can't believe you did that. You should feel really shameful and guilty. That's not Jesus. He's pleading your case before the Father. Get that picture in your mind right? You've seen Judge Judy. Get the picture in your mind. You got an attorney and the attorney is pleading your case. That's Jesus. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I'm not my own advocate. Amen? My works are not my advocate. My guilt and my shame and my, look how bad I feel, God, is not my advocate. My good works are not my advocate. 
None of that. Jesus is my advocate. And then he says in verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. I am so glad that the Bible throws these weird words in every once in a while. Because it gives me a chance to stand here and wax eloquent. And then you can all look at me and be like, man, he's so smart. Aren't we fortunate to have him as a pastor? Everybody who's laughing right now has been here for longer than two months. And I appreciate this, that laughter. What I do want to say is this. like Words and meaning really do matter. And so when I start talking about the meaning of words and the original language of words and, and, and of the words in the New Testament, things like that, it's not to try to, to make anybody look and say, oh, wow. It really is because we believe in something called verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. All of the words of the scriptures are inspired by God. Okay? That means they're all important. And so when we talk about big theological words, they have a lot of importance. And so I want to help you understand some of them. Propitiation. Some of your translations will say, because that's not a word we use a whole lot, most of your translations probably say sacrifice of atonement, right? You may have a translation that says the word expiate or expiation. And you're like, what does that mean? And, and I feel like you can tell I'm a little grovelly today. I feel like expiate is something that I need to do. And you're like, what is that word? That's really weird. So forget that one if that is your translation. Sacrifice of atonement. So this word is only actually used two times in the New Testament in, in this way. John uses it both times. It's here and one other time in 1 John, and I'll show you it in just a minute. But I want you to, to get the idea of this word. Um, when it says sacrifice of atonement, that's the idea of like removal of guilt. And so in the Old Testament, they would have had the uh, mercy seat. They would have the, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Um, the high priest would have come in, would have made the sacrifice. And the idea behind the sacrifice and the blood that they put on the mercy seat is a sacrifice of atonement. It covered over the sins, okay? And so when they talk about that, the focus is on the sin and it's, the focus is on the guilt. And I believe there is a piece of that that Jesus did. But the word propitiation means much, much more than that. And it actually means something that even theologians get really uncomfortable with. And so oftentimes they negate this next piece that I'm going to tell you about from the meaning of this word. To propitiate. If you look up that word, and again, when I do word studies, I'll be reading through the text and I'll say, man, propitiation, that's a word I better look it up, right? And so I'll go to some resources, and I'll say, how does the Greek New Testament, how is it used in other places in the Greek New Testament? How is it used in the, in the Septuagint, which is the uh, translation of the Old Testament into Greek? And how did they use that there? And then there are resources that help me go and look and say, like outside of the Bible at the same time, how is this used, word used in different places there? And it helps us to understand the range of what the word is. So outside of God's word, outside of the Bible, this word was used relatively regularly to talk about when you had the pantheon of gods, Greco-Roman gods, for example, and those, that pantheon of false gods that people believe that they, those gods were angry and capricious and they were mad and they were upset with people. And we need to figure out how to get them to be not mad with us. And so maybe it's sacrificing our children or maybe it's making a food sacrifice or some other kind of sacrifice. To propitiate meant to satisfy the wrath of a God, okay? Now, what, here's what's really important, what that means, is that that means that the God is angry. The God is wrathful. Now, in, in extra-biblical, like outside of the Bible, the problem was is that people never knew what was expected of them, right? If you read Greek mythology, they never knew what was expected. They're just offering things in hopes of appeasing the wrath of this God. 
When John uses the word propitiation, he is implying what Paul will make specific in Romans chapter 1. God is angry. God is wrathful. God is righteously wrathful. Okay? To propitiate means to satisfy the wrath. This is a theologically vital that we understand this so that we understand what's going on in our lives and our hearts when we, quote, get saved, right? Romans chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and go on a little tour with me. Romans chapter 1, because I want you to see it for yourself. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Go ahead and turn to Romans 1, 18. <clears throat> Romans 1, 18 says this. For the... What? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress their unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a statement about the character of God. That God is angry. That God does get angry. That God's anger and wrath is righteous, but it is true. This idea that God is love and would never get mad at anybody else. Church, everybody look right here, okay? You need to know that that's false. This is like God is love and only love and wouldn't do anything that wasn't loving. But God's wrath, righteous wrath, is the most loving thing that any of us can understand. And I'll help you to understand why. In Romans 1.18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul expounds, the Apostle Paul who writes this letter, expounds why God's wrath is righteous. And he says things like Romans chapter 3, verse 10. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. They've all turned aside. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Right? Romans 1.18 through 3.20 just comp continues to expound on that. Romans 3.23 is where the good news starts. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Church, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Justified means declared righteous, right standing before God. And the results of that, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that you can look at. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, how can I understand the peace of God if I don't understand the wrath of God? Why does, why does the peace of God make any difference at all if God's just a God of love who can let everybody do whatever they want. No, the righteous wrath of God is a biblical doctrine. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like that is doctrine worth getting excited about. When we turn back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and it says that he is the propitiation for our sins. I need you to know that Jesus doesn't merely provide the propitiation, that he in fact is the propitiation. That Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice. That's the book of Hebrews, by the way. He's the high priest who brings a sacrifice, and he is himself the sacrifice. That we are under the wrath of God. That's the bad news. But the good news is that through Jesus, the wrath of God, we sing a song called Jesus, Thank You. And part of the lines are, the wrath of God completely satisfied, once your enemy, now seated at your table. That's gospel truth. And that's why a doctrine like propitiation is so important for me to preach about and for you to know about. 
that through Jesus, God's wrath has been satisfied. And then there's this phrase at the end of verse 2, and to be honest with you, I mean, I wish it wasn't even there. And so do you, because this sermon would be shorter if it wasn't. It says, he's the propitiation for our sins. Oh, also, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Some of you are really excited about that. You're like, see, nobody's going to go to hell. Everybody gets to go to heaven at the end of the day. He died for the sins of the whole world. Woohoo! And I would say, you're a heretic because that is called universalism. There's at least one church I know of that's really close to here, and, and I call it church very uh, liberally, that teaches universalism. Universalism is not scriptural. Everybody gets to go to heaven is not what this passage is teaching. When he says, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's a few ways that, that people look at it. That's actually a very contentious, contentious uh, doctrine. So universalism says everybody gets to go to heaven. Free will Arminianism says, well, Jesus died, and that kind of provided salvation possibility for everybody. And then Jesus just stepped back and said, let's see who picks. Let's see who takes it, and we'll see what happens. That's called free will Arminianism. I don't ascribe to that understanding. There's the debate between limited atonement and unlimited atonement, if you're familiar with all of that as well, right? And everybody has a different take and a different view and understanding. What does it mean when he said he died for the whole world? Does that mean the whole world of the elect people? Does that mean the whole world of everybody and then some people will choose him? Here's my understanding of this text after study and trying to, to figure out as best I can that when John says that in the end of verse 2, he died for the sins of the whole world. Here's what he means. He's talking about not just John and John's audience. He's talking about not just Jewish people. That Jesus' sacrifice is valid everywhere for all kinds of people. Commentator by the name of Karen Job says it this way, the Christian gospel knows no geographical, racial, ethnic, national, or cultural bounds. It's both inclusive and exclusive. One of the ways that people have continued to talk about that is, is this, is by saying that Jesus' atoning sacrifice is sufficient, it is enough, it is sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world. It becomes efficient or effective as God calls one to himself, and then that person accepts Christ in faith. And that's how it works. Different people, different views, different nuances, that's my understanding of it. But here's the implication. Obedience is, in fact, the expectation. You can have freedom over sin. We can have freedom over the sins in our lives. But when we sin, we don't have to wallow in guilt. We don't have to wallow in shame. Why? Because Jesus has acted on your behalf. Jesus has acted on your behalf. Jesus is acting on your behalf. We confess our sins, as chapter 1, verse 9 says, and then we move forward in obedience. Obedience is the expectation. Then in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, again, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, that obedience is the evidence. Obedience is the evidence, and it's the evidence that gives us assurance of our salvation, really, as we'll see. Because obedience is not optional. Verse 3 says this, <clears throat> And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know, we have assurance that we have come to know him. How? 
if we keep his commandments. Now that word know is really important. John's going to use it a lot. He uses it four times in just these few verses that we're going to look at. And I want you to understand a few things about it. The word know does not mean just knowing facts about. It does not mean being able to recognize. It does not mean just I have my theological ducks in a row. It doesn't mean that I can just expound theology proper or I can expound Christology. It is also not some sort of like a secret or mystical knowledge. In John's day, that was the case. There were false teachers who said that they had been given a special revelation from God. And they had secret knowledge or mystical knowledge. Did you know in our days there are people who stand on pulpit, stand on stages like this and say the same thing? And they don't have a Bible, but they have a direct revelation, a word from God, and it sounds much more spiritual. But John will call those people antichrists in about one chapter. And he'll end this letter by telling us to keep ourselves from idols. Like at the end of the day, as we think about knowing, knowing means this. It means knowing personally, knowing for yourself, having experiential knowledge. Knowing, when we see the word know, it means to have a relationship with. And I'll give you this illustration to help you think about it. Uh, as a young man, from the time I was in elementary school, junior high, high school, and then into college, I loved soccer. I watched soccer, I played soccer, played, got to play in high school, got to play in college, and I loved to watch it and root for different teams. I watched a lot of soccer from overseas um, because of the fact that like, we didn't have a, when I was younger, we didn't have a, a league in America. But then we had the 1994 World Cup here in the United States. I watched every game at my grandparents' house. I was 15 years old. I was super excited. And then after that, they started what was known as Major League Soccer. You guys know the Seattle Sounders? right? Major League Soccer. We got our first pro league in a long time, and people were really excited about it. So living on the East Coast next to Washington, D.C., I started cheering for a team called D.C. United. They won the inaugural MLS Cup. I was super excited. In high school, it was great. Then in 1999, they went to the MLS Cup final in 1999. They were going to play against the L.A. Galaxy, and it was going to be in Foxborough, Massachusetts, where the New England Patriots play they were going to be there for the final, the Super Bowl of soccer. So a buddy of mine at college and myself, we got tickets, we made the road trip, we went up to watch the game. And I knew all about the players, and I knew all about the team, and I studied, I did the research, I knew a lot of information. And we were excited to see this happen, and we were excited because one of the players for DC United, his name was Roy Lasseter, and he was a prolific goal scorer, played in some different teams, he was sponsored by Nike, he was super fast, really good on the field, and, and at one point he was actually the leading goal scorer for all of Major League Soccer. And so we were excited because we get to see Roy Lasseter play soccer. And so we go and we get there early and we get into the stadium and we're walking around and they let us in and I'm right down by the field and I took a picture because Roy was there and he was like warming up and I was like, man, this is super cool. And so this was uh, 1999, by the way, did I mention that? So what you're looking at is a facsimile of what we call a 35 millimeter camera. Anybody? Yes? It had this little thing, and it was a point and click. I didn't have the kind with all, you know, my zoom was this, right? You click, and then the film would advance automatically. I wasn't archaic. Do any of you remember this one? Click. Yeah, some of you, okay, right? So Roy is over here. This is Roy. And that was as close as I got to him. And I didn't yell and scream, hey, Roy, can you come over and get a picture? And can I take a selfie with my little 35 millimeter? No. I just watched, and I was like, wow. And DC United went on to win that game and win the MLS Cup championship. And I was so excited. I got to see this guy that I knew all about, and they won the game, and we were pumped and had a big party. 
20 years later, I took another picture at another soccer game. You want to see it? This is me with my friend, Roy Lassiter. It's actually me and my wife and our girls, and that's Roy Lassiter and his, his daughter, uh, Izzy is over there next to Lynn's, and his wife, Wendy, is there as well. Roy's my buddy. You're like, did you know him back then? No, I didn't know him back then. Roy moved into our neighborhood. Like a few years before this, we're like, Roy moved into my neighborhood on South Hill. The weirdest thing, right? I'm at home. The girls were young, and so they would always go out, and they would try to, like, you know, meet the new neighbors and new friends. U-Haul truck pulls in. There's, like, five or six bikes following the U-Haul truck, Right? And they come home, and they're like, we got new neighbors. It's so fun. Oh, they got a daughter. It's great. I can't believe it. Then my, one of my other neighbors comes by. He's like, dude, did you hear? There's like a, a pro soccer player that just moved in down the street. It's like, oh, who was it? He's like, I don't know. He played on the World Cup team in 98 and a few things. His, Roy Lassiter. I was like, what? Fangirl. No, I didn't fangirl. But the crazy thing was is that Izzy became friends with our girls, and then Roy and I found, it out, found out that we have a, a common interest in cycling. And so we used to go cycling together all the time. Imagine me trying to keep up with a former pro soccer player on a bike. Not pretty, right? But we became good buddies. We went to soccer games together. That game, we actually went to see their, their son, Ari. At that point, uh, Ariel was playing for uh, LA Galaxy. And so we went and watched, and he got a jersey and the whole deal. And we got to know them. They actually lived in our home for a little bit of time, for better or for worse. But you know what? We became friends, and we got to know more than just some stats, and he was sponsored by Nike, and blah, 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 blah. Do you know what the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 14 says that God did in the person of Jesus? He moved into the neighborhood so that we could have a relationship with him. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and tabernacle, dwelt among us. To know God through Jesus means to have a relationship with him. It doesn't mean I showed up at VBS or Awana, memorized some verses, and now I can requote them. It means that I have a relationship with him, that I'm walking with him. But here's the trick on that, right? I can tell you that I have a relationship with Roy Lasser because I can show you pictures. I can show you the text messages that I was sending him back and forth yesterday, right? I can prove to you that I have a relationship with Roy. How do we know that we've come to know God? How do we know? The word is by keeping his what? Come on, all of you rule keepers, by keeping his commandments. Yes, that's the proof. That's the evidence. That's the assurance. Again, John uses that 14 times. He talks about commandments. By keeping his commandments. Now, I want to make something really clear, okay? Make something really clear. John is not teaching that obedience is a necessary condition for knowing God, okay? Really important. He's not saying it's a necessary condition for knowing God. He is teaching that it is a necessary result of knowing God. It's the same thing that James says in James chapter 2 when James says that faith without works is dead. That the scriptures say that obedience to God is a necessary result of having a relationship with God. Obedience is the fruit of the relationship. We say that we obey from a relationship, not for a relationship. Does that make sense? Like This is foundational. This is fundamental for the way that we think about God and religion. Some of us have been taught that we obey God for a relationship with God. 
the more I do, the more that I don't do, the more rules that I keep, that I have more relationship with God. We obey for relationship with God. That's not biblical. We obey God from a relationship. We say, Jesus is my advocate, my propitiation. I've been saved by grace through faith. I have a relationship with God. Then I live out of that relationship. And it's so important. I want to illustrate it this way. It's the best illustration I know how to use. That there is a big difference between how we train children and how we train animals. Did you know this? Some of you, this is revelatory. You're like, I better write this down. There's a big difference between how we train children and how we train animals. I'll prove it to you. We got a new puppy a couple months ago. Love the little dog most of the time. But I want you to know, I'm gonna, I just want to put this out and let everybody know, that my relationship with that dog is completely contingent on his obedience to me. That's just how it is. If he's obeying me and doing what I said, and I got three things, right? Sit, st- me four, sit, stay, come here, and don't go to the bathroom where you're not supposed to. That's not hard. That's like four rules, okay? When he obeys those rules, oh, I love him. He's sweet. He's cuddly. He's a mini Bernie doodle, okay? So, like, we gave him a bath. He's that big. We blow dry his hair. He's that big. Like, that's amazing, right? We love him to death. When he's obeying me, he's my best friend. When he's not obeying me, I'm picking up the phone, ready to call somebody to see if they want him right? My relationship with that dog is completely contingent on his obedience with me. And my neighborhood is jacked up. I'll just tell you this. You're going to learn a lot about my little neighborhood today. One of my buddies who's a neighbor, he actually put their dog on Facebook Marketplace for the same reason. While his wife was out of town, she left. Dog went off. I'm not making this up, remember? Yeah. She comes back home. Where's the dog? Uh, he had to go beg for the dog back. It gets worse. We got a little old lady that just moved. She lived there for years and years and years. And she had um, Dobermans, had several Dobermans that she just loved to death. She's a little tiny thing, 80 plus years old. She got this Doby that was just out of control. Very, very, very disobedient. Would knock her down, bite people and things. She takes the dog to the vet. You know what the vet said? You need to have the dog put down. The dog was disobedient to the point where the dog got put down. Might I suggest that doesn't work with your kids, right? I don't get to, my, my kids, I don't get to say, oh, I don't know, you guys have been a real mess. Let's go to the vet. That's going to get me in trouble. Why? Because my relationship, my relationship with a pet might be contingent on the obedience, but my relationship with my girls is not in any way contingent on that obedience. Do I expect obedience from my daughters? Do I teach obedience? Do I love them? absolutely. Obedience is implicit. It's part of that. But no matter what they do, right? No matter what they do, and we tell them this regularly, no matter what you do now or later, no matter what you do, you're always my daughter. That my relationship with you is not contingent on your obedience. That's your relationship with God. Okay? And then my obedience comes out of that relationship. My obedience to God is the result of having that relationship with him. That's how we get this obedience and relationship thing right. Verse 4 says this, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You say, I've heard that before. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
John's just coming back and reiterating the same thing that he already said. And he's saying this, like, if you're walking around telling people you're a Christian, if you're coming to church, if you're saying the verses, doing the things, but you're not keeping the commandments, you're not truly walking with the Lord. And again, that doesn't mean I struggle with the sin issue or that I've got a sin here or there. What this means is like the trajectory of my life is going in a direction that is not God's direction. You can't have an authentic relationship with God if you don't obey his commands. You can't have an authentic relationship with God and not obey his commands. As a matter of fact, and you don't have to turn there, but I do want you to see that probably 50 years before John writes these words, John was in a room with Jesus, and John, a younger John, heard Jesus say these things. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is in the upper room, and he has these words to say. John was there, these words to say about obedience. John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them... He it is who loves me. Verse 23, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. His commandments. Not my commandments, not my rules, not the extra legalistic stuff. His commandments. How do we know? The rest of verse 5. By this we may know, have assurance that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. The trajectory of my life, like consistency and direction of life that is following the commands of Jesus. That's the evidence. When I was 12 years old, I went to a church camp and I got saved at four years old, grew up in church. And I went to a church camp and I was really struggling as the pastor preached with, am I saved? That question that so many of us wrestle with, am I saved? And I went forward and the pastor who had preached took me to the side and by the grace of God and this guy's godly wisdom, he didn't try to get me to just repray a prayer. But he walked with me and talked with me about my life. And did I know what I was saying when I prayed when I was four? And did I understand what that meant? And how had I lived since then? Had it showed it? And that man gave me assurance of salvation so I could walk out of that room and say, yeah, the trajectory of my life is such that it shows that I have a relationship with God. Like that's what it means and what it looks like. So I know that there are some of us, again, who are rule keepers and some of us who are rule breakers. We need to know that the balance between those is obedience to God out of a relationship with God. And I want to close by reading something for you because I think that when we talk about obedience, it's easy for it to be really vague. And I trust that as I preach God's word and God's spirit lays on your heart the areas where you need to continue to obey or to obey uh, in a different way, whatever that looks like, but I want to read this to you because I think it gets a lot more specific. I'd also like to say, remember, all I did was copy and paste. So when you get offended, you can get offended at the person at the bottom of the list in the footnote. Keeping God's commandments is a key piece of evidence in the chain of proof of your love for God. If you have any spiritual smarts about you, you will pay attention. Do you have an enemy? Forgive him today. Have you wronged or are you wronging someone? Make it right today. Are you constantly bad-mouthing brothers in Christ? Then lay off your social media account. Turn off your computer and your smartphone for a while. Are you maxed out with credit card debt? Then do some, quote, plastic surgery. His joke, not mine. 
and live on soup and chicken pot pies for a while. Like, that's weird. Well, the guy says, when I was in college in the 70s, you could get chicken pot pies, five for a dollar on sale. Okay, live on ramen. Are you lazy? Quit lying around playing video games and look for a job. Do you struggle with cursing or crude language? Remember, I have, we have to give an account for every idle word we speak, so clean your mouth up. Do you play the lottery or slink off to the casino? Quit trying to get something for nothing. For every time you win, thousands of others have to lose. Are you a social drinker who thinks it's cool or even necessary to fit in with contemporary culture? Then try abstinence. And I'll pause right here and say this, okay? My belief about alcohol in Scripture is not abstinence, okay? I think moderation is what Scripture teaches. But I do want to say this, that for so many people that grew up in legalistic Christian environments and have swung to the license side, it manifests itself in younger Christians in two ways. It's their language and it's alcohol. And what I've seen and observed and even seen in myself at times is that what happens is that the language can be whatever it wants. I was at a Christian conference, like a conference for pastors, and one of the speakers kept dropping the F-bomb. I'm not making that up. They actually used the F word on multiple occasions addressing a group of pastors. Someone finally got tired of it and said, hey, like, help me understand this. And he said, well, I have Christian freedom, so I can say whatever the F I want. Seriously, right? No, well, what about, what about Ephesians 4.29, right? What about not, don't let any unwholesome communication come out of your mouth, only that which is helpful for edifying. The same thing with alcohol. Again, I believe in moderation, but I've seen a generation of Christians who think the only way that you can practice Christian freedom is if you have a glass of wine or a beer or a shot in your hand or whatever it is. And what we have to think about is like, what about all the brothers and sisters who are struggling with alcoholism, right? Like it's more nuanced than that. So we need to be really careful about how we react against legalism and how we react with license in these very real ways. He continues, this is the end. Are you a two-faced hypocrite? Get right with God and yourself. Stop the Jekyll and Hyde charade. Bring all the junk, the broken pieces of your life to Jesus. He will forgive you, heal you, restore you. He will set you free so that you can walk in obedience to him. Why, church? Because obedience is not optional. Obedience is how we show that we have the love of Christ in us. Amen? Stand with me this morning. We're going to close in a word of prayer. And I said this in the first service. I don't just pray because, man, we got to do something to get you guys out of here. Like we pray because we believe that God speaks to us through his word. And God does stuff in everybody's heart. And so then as I pray, I'm asking God to solidify that in your heart. Maybe you need to become a Christian today. Accept Christ as your Savior. Maybe you need to repent of some major area of sin. Or maybe you just need to be encouraged to keep walking with the Lord. But as I pray, I want you to pray and ask the Spirit of God to use his word in your life as well. God, we love you. We love your word. We love that we can rely on it, trust in it, that I can stand firmly on it and preach it. I thank you. You've given me at least enough voice to finish this today. And I'm thankful that we can be challenged, encouraged, and convicted from your word. God, would you continue to do your work? Holy Spirit, would you continue as we leave here, get into the conversations we're going to have, do the things we're going to do, continue to use your word to do its work in our lives today. God, I trust you that you know what each person needs here. And so we thank you that we've had the opportunity this morning to do this. Uh, thank you for the great class that's going on in the other room as well. Pray that you continue to strengthen that group as Dennis teaches your word. Uh, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.